Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole And folks, welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palouse. I am Melissa Palouse, um, minus my awesome co-host and husband, Devin, who is busy studying tonight and um, in class. Um, and so it's just me. I hope that um, you're not disappointed too much that he's not here with you. Um, but it's been um, a really interesting and great season of our lives Um where he's studying and um, getting trained for ministry and doing a pastoral intern. And um, we've really wanted to keep the show going, though. And so it's just been a great opportunity for me to um, just come on and be with you all and um, to share what God's doing in our lives and what he's doing um, just in the body of Christ in general. Um, He's doing some really neat things. So, um, we are so excited to be back with you for another episode of Theology Matters with the Palouse. Um, we are going to have an awesome show today. Um, we have a very, very special guest with us, someone who I've, I've actually just recently got to know, but I have followed her for some time, and it, she's someone who I, I definitely look up to and um, definitely admire. Um Sarah Geis is with us today, and she is an adjunct professor of philosophy and apologetics at Denver Seminary, where she also received her master's degree, and she has worked with um, just some great people who we look up to on the show, um, such as um, uh, doc, uh, Dr. Doug Ortiz and just the wonderful people at Denver Seminary. It's a, it's a great, great place learn and grow in apologetics and philosophy and theology. And so if you're looking for a place um, uh, to study, that would definitely be a place that that we would recommend. But we're really, really excited to have Sarah with us. We're going to discuss some really good um, theological but also practical um, issues today. So, Sarah, are you there? I am. Awesome. Thanks for having me. 
Well, we really, really are um, excited about having you. I mean, I, I have, again, I have followed you for a while, and I know who you are. <laughs> I know who I am. But um, definitely, um, I think through some of our discussions with colleagues and that we've um, definitely bonded about our, our hearts, about apologetics and theology and ministry and, and these sort of things. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you on for this discussion today. Oh, thanks. Me too. I'm glad to have gotten to know you a little bit, and I'm yeah. really looking forward to this extended time we get to talk. Absolutely. So our discussion is going is a little different than um, what uh, most apologetic talks are about. We're not going to look at the existence of God or the evidence for the resurrection or the logically of the Bible. We're going to look at apologetics, the, the field and the study in general, and we're going to do some some kind of overall, um, not critiques, but just some overall um, just observations about um, what's going on in contemporary apologetics and um, how we as apologists, and when I say we as apologists, like I don't consider myself to be of the class of most people <laughs> who are in apologetics, but um, it's just it's a field that I love and, and I um, we've devoted our lives to, but um, I I think that there's definitely wisdom that we need to talk, to deal with, and we need to look at our at the movement in general and see where we are, and and um, you know that maybe some uh, even just some admonitions and exhortations and these sort of things. So so we're going to look at some of the pitfalls of apologetics. <laughs> so um, and it's hard, you know. It's, Especially, I think in this field, it's it's hard because you um, because it can get very intellectual very fast, and it's hard to critique yourself on a personal level. Um, it's easy to keep everything very superficial, um, and so why do you think that it's important that we discuss this topic, Sarah? Well, I think that for one, often people who do get involved with apologetics are extremely excited by ideas, and that is a good thing. That's that's what I am like. That's why I'm in the field. But because we get so excited about ideas, we often want to do more of what excites us and not do as much self-analysis because that slows us down and mm-hmm. that causes us to lose uh, perceived traction that we may have in the realm mm-hmm. of ideas and maybe in the realm of convincing others. But the irony is is that if we don't slow down and look at ourselves and uh, figure out how to do this more virtuously and how to be more Christ-like, then we're actually going to convince less people and we're going to turn more mm-hmm. people away. So even exactly. if it's not comfortable, it's needed. Right. And and it's not comfortable. It's not it's never comfortable to critique yourself <laughs> or to critique your right. field or those or those or your or your colleagues in your field. Um but it's like you you know, it's necessary if we're if we're going to really if this is going to be a movement that is going to affect people's lives, it's something that we really have to think about. So, um, absolutely, totally agree with you. Um, so let's look at what. Okay, so what's going on right now? What, what would you say in terms of the apologetics landscape right now? What we're dealing with in what 2015. Um, yes, there's a lot going on. So there is. You, yeah, yeah. How do you gauge this? Well, one of the things that that I do is uh, one of the interests that I have in philosophy is called cultural criticism or social criticism. And what that means 
basically in lay terms is that I uh, am very observant about social trends and how people interact with other people and how ideas mm-hmm. uh, move move around. And so what I've seen is not not that apologetics is new. It's been around for the entire duration of the church. It is new in its in its ability to reach people who would maybe 50 years ago never have heard the the term apologetics. So part of that mm-hmm. and I think possibly even the greatest part of that is the internet. Mm-hmm. The fact that we have the ability to have groups on Facebook such as the Christian Apologetics Alliance, which is a terrific resource. And uh, yet what it does is it allows people to be exposed to a level of apologetics that they may not have had the opportunity to be involved in because they can't either afford seminary or maybe they don't have time for seminary Mm -hmm. or uh, just don't know where to start. So you have those. You've got a, a huge and increasing number of apologetics conferences that are popping up and this right. this is new <laughs> it's not apologetics conferences themselves are not new but there there are more and more of them so they're new yeah, in, we, we, in number we've been at conferences it seems like every i mean every other weekend there's a different conference that we've been at on uh, apologetics related and it's it's so interesting because it i mean three four years ago it was just not that was not the case no <laughs> No, and part of that is because marketing is easier now, given the Internet, (laughs) given Mm -hmm. Facebook, uh, Twitter. So you've got, uh, I think in response to all of this, you've got an increasing number of apologetics degrees, and this was not the case uh, until fairly recently either. Mm -hmm. So there are a bunch of of things that are feeding into this. The, I think, original... um, piece, in addition to the the Internet being a big deal, the original reason that apologetics has been on the rise in schools, I think, is because of the increased respectability of Christianity in um, the field of philosophy, specifically. And that started largely with, uh, I think you can attribute that um, to Alvin Plantinga, who is a very well-known Christian philosopher. And so there are a lot of reasons for that, but basically what we are seeing now is there are far more people who are into full, into Christian apologetics who would not have been in this field if they were born 20 or more years ago. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, and as you know, um, Devin and I are, are very involved with Fresher Christie, um, which I know you're mm-hmm. very familiar with, with um, restoring um, the defense of Christianity on the college campus. And so um, we're really excited to see what God's doing because – I really believe this is going to be the movement that will that's going to just sh- shake everything up because the ca- the college campus um, is where these ideas are forming about moral morality and um, a number of different things. So um, right. we're really excited to see God um, restore um, a biblical foundation through Rasher Christie and that to these campuses. Um, but like you said, there there are there are we still have to think about how we present what we know and the information that we have received and um in our focus in terms of being um people oriented and 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 that kind of thing so yeah right so this can be seen almost as the ethics of apologetics um how how do we do it how should we do it and mm-hmm. 
I think one one good way to look at that is through the lens of virtue. How do we do this in a virtuous way and become virtuous people? So it it makes mm-hmm. it not only about ideas but about character. Right, which is kind of the paradox because we are dealing with these, you know, very um, intellectual issues that are um, that we have to ascertain and study and and deal with and work through these questions and all these sort of things. But also we're, um, as followers of Christ, our goal is to, to advance his glory at the same time. Right. So there's almost this, um, it's, it can be difficult because you're, you don't want to um, uh, put your yourself and your knowledge um, of particular items or, or topics as um as the crux of everything, you want to still give God glory in all of that. So right. it can be difficult. <laughs> I can even admit it can myself, be, and, and we have we have a very hard time with uh, the the paradox, so to speak, which should be resolved. Paradoxes are not just hopeless, but <laughs> it should be resolved <laughs> between um, humility and confidence. And mm-hmm. we need to have confidence in the truth and confidence that God is in control and that the Holy Spirit is living and active, but we don't need to be arrogant. We we need to be humble. And I think it, I'm, I'm not sure if this was C.S. Lewis or if it was G.K. Chesterton, I can't remember, but one of the two said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So mm-hmm. we're not supposed to go out there confident in our ability to sway the masses, but instead we're we're to go out there as broken vessels but studied, educated, ready with the sort of truth. Right, right. And, you know, the thing is, um, you know, even with some of the disciplines in apologetics, um, in academia, we do see, even though Christianity is, overall, it, it, you know, it's still ridiculed in these sort of things and looked down upon, there are still um, apologists and those in academia who are really making strides and who are really gaining, gaining credibility um, in the world of academia, um, yes. which is a which is a good thing, um, but if that is our goal in and of itself, what could be the the result of that? Well, this is like you said, it's a very good thing because we do, uh, and this is what you mentioned. Ratio Christie is trying to do, trying to mm-hmm. get or increase the credibility, increase the plausibility of Christianity on college campuses. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to do that is to have very intelligent, highly high-ranking and highly credentialed Christians who are out there and they're capable of uh, of reaching the highest levels of academia and answering the, the toughest objections. But mm-hmm. the difficulty there is that then that becomes the perceived pinnacle of apologetics, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Air quotes there, because <laughs> it's, it's not. Right. Uh, it doesn't. You don't have to be a PhD to be an apologist. Right. Um, Francis Schaeffer had an honorary PhD, but was not a PhD. He was first and foremost uh, a learned pastor. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought I did not know that his PhD was not an earned. Interesting. And he was yeah. ama- he was and amazingly brilliant. Yeah. He was. He he was. And so the the thing that is a danger here is that if we already are as people interested in apologetics, if we're already 
people who want to think well and to read hard things and to be able to answer difficult objections, then the people who do that best become our celebrities. And what tends to happen is that we can be tempted to respect the best and the brightest intellectually, but pay no attention or pay little attention to their character, pay little attention Mm -hmm. to actually how effective they are. Because there is a difference between being respected as a smart person and then being actually effective for Christ. Because you could feasibly, you could go out there and have a bunch of atheist co-workers or atheist peers Mm -hmm. say, yes, this person who is a conservative Christian is extremely intelligent, and we would even maybe want to do a panel discussion with this person, but they still may not actually be any more inclined to believe Christianity than they were before they met this Christian. They're just more likely to invite the Christian to, to lunch or to a discussion or something like that, which is a good step, Mm -hmm. but it's not sufficient. Right. Yeah, you know, and sometimes I hear discussions, um, you know, I I know that we have to, we don't want to catch our our pearls before swine, but sometimes there's even an attitude within um, the apologetics world where there's there's certain people that we don't want to engage even, you know? Right. They may not even be worth our time or effort because they're not where we are. They don't think, you know, as highly as we do about certain um, ideas and these sort of things. So I've seen that lately, too, which bothers me. Yes. That is something that is a problem with a lack of humility. And the reason is is because if you are convinced, and I don't mean you personally, Melissa, but if you, the hypothetical you, are are convinced of how brilliant you are, then Mm -hmm. what you're going to want to do is you're going to, you're going to want to engage with only those who have the ability to display your brilliance or to give you the opportunity to display your brilliance. And Mm -hmm. if you say are an expert in uh, metaphysics or an expert in, um, Alvin Plantinga's Reformed Epistemology, then you may be tempted to go out and try to find other people who are wrestling with that issue and then ignore people with existential concerns, such as the pastoral problem of evil, uh, or even simply uh, issues where someone may have basic misconceptions of faith Mm -hmm. and reason. Mm -hmm. They just may need to be listened to. Exactly, because we, we have no idea, being finite creatures, who God's going to place in our path. Um, and if we have a very narrow window of who, you know, we're willing to dialogue with about certain things, and we're not willing to bring things down to a certain level, just so that we can talk to other people who are humans just like us, who are finite just like right. us, then we, we really will miss out on a lot of opportunities that, that God's place in our path. I, I truly believe that. Right. That is yeah. very true. And and that's part of why um, I, I do accept the term apologist, but I also wish that more often, instead of introducing ourselves as apologists, we would just be Christians and recognize that apologetics is our calling, is, is the calling mm-hmm. of all Christians. Because mm-hmm. all Christians in all places are called to defend the faith and are called right. to go forth and make disciples in the Great Commission. So if that's the case, then what what this does 
in your mind, if you're acknowledging that you are a Christian first and foremost, then mm-hmm. it doesn't allow you to divorce apologetics from sanctification, from character development, mm-hmm. and from okay. compassion to other people. There's a lot there that you just, uh, there's a lot there to unpack <laughs> that you just shared. Yes. Um, let me ask you this. So I did have a, a conversation recently with a person who said, um, well, apologetics, is that's you and Devin's thing, you know. I'm not called to do that. And my my answer was, um, okay, are you called to share the gospel? And they said, obviously, yeah, you know, I'm called to share the gospel. Okay, so in this culture, or in any culture, do you not need to be equipped to do that? Should, should you not strive to be equipped to share the gospel? And, and the person said, of course. Well, then I don't understand how you can um, completely ignore apologetics, you know? So it's, I think that's what the problem is, is that we've kind of created this second class of people that are the apologists, which is a good, we need people that are, that are devoted to studying certain areas, of, you know, of, of um, in academia and these sort of things. But all Christians have to have some level of understanding of how to defend our faith. Because we're in a world, if we're going to share the gospel, we have to be able to do that. You know? Right. So, That's very yeah. true. And one of, here's an example. One of my very favorite things to study is uh, the issue of epistemology, and specifically um, Descartes' epistemology, uh, Rene Descartes, the, the mm-hmm. 17th century philosopher. And I have to be very careful to recognize that, that even though that topic gets me going, it is not the topic that gets the vast majority of the world going. And mm-hmm. I could I could talk all day long about that topic, but most people simply either don't care or it's just not helpful to them at that point because you do mm-hmm. we do have limited time with people and right. they have this is just the nature of humanity. We have limited attention spans. So it would be it would be irresponsible for me to take my uh, or use whatever pulpit I have or whatever um, hearing I have with people and then use it to talk about my pet issues. Mm-hmm. Unless it is actually pertinent, which is not a very common occurrence. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unless it's yeah, definitely applicable but, to the culture that you're in, yeah. Yeah. But then when you were going back to what you were saying about uh, your friend who doesn't simply doesn't think she's um, an apologist mm-hmm. or doesn't think that's her mm-hmm. thing. This is mm-hmm. this is a problem that we faced with theology, and we still do face with theology. Is the how how integrally related and um, dependent upon uh, theology Christianity is. They don't recognize. Mm-hmm. And here's here's something to think about too: is that if apologetics is the defense of the faith, then apologetics is basically articulating our theology. And Mm -hmm. so if if theology is, just like in the song that you lead with, uh, if theology is what you do Mm -hmm. when you talk about God and and what Mm -hmm. you do when you're you're building a relationship with God, it's it's all of the the knowledge of God that you um, either intentionally or unintentionally gain that right. then apologetics should flow naturally from that because if it's important, if it's if it's true and pertinent, then we have to be prepared to talk about it and to establish oh. its, its not only plausibility but its 
it's truthfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if God, if God is who we who we say that He is and who we believe that He is, then we would we should want to um, devote all our effort to learning more about Him and to digging deeper into growing and studying and learning and um, it should be a lifelong pursuit and we should never be satisfied. You know, no matter how much knowledge that we get, um, he's right. he's infinite in that. But um, I do get. You know, learning people are just kind of okay with, um, okay, you guys are the apologists. I'm just the person here who's just serving Jesus and these sort of things as if there's some dichotomy um, there, um, and which isn't, uh, which doesn't exist. So talk to me right. about culti- talk to me about cultivated obsolescence. I've been reading yes. some of your stuff, <laughs> and so I'm <laughs> interested for you to talk about that and to share that with us. <laughs> yes. Okay, this is this is a phrase. I was trying to come up with a good way of putting this, and so this phrase just kept popping into my mind over and over. And the idea of cultivated obsolescence is that we can actually create our own um, or dig our own grave, to use Oz Guinness's terminology. We can we can create a situation where we mm-hmm. are seen obsolete in the eyes of the public or in the eyes of the culture. So the way that we do that is we we can speak, write, act in any sort of way that causes us to be an annoyance or causes us to seem in the ears of the public to see, seem like we don't know what we're talking about or maybe we are uh, hasty in our judgments or we miss the point and aren't really listening. Any any number of things like that cause us to, and this is kind of what I, the analogy that I have, it, it turns us into, instead of our tick and loving defenders of the faith, we sound more like the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoons, where we're just mm-hmm. making sounds because the public has tuned yeah. us out. Yeah. And yeah. this is a major, major problem when uh, we have a huge online platform to do nothing but communicate and express ourselves whether or not it's well-timed, well-thought-out, or articulate. It it may be. That's wonderful when people do mm-hmm. post things like that. But mm-hmm. often we just express ourselves right and left, and it rarely sits well with other people because it's not thought through. Yeah, yeah just, throwing, just throwing ideas out there. Um, without basically without an ultimate purpose, um, right? Is, yeah, think what you're saying. Hmm. That's yeah. That's very. Yeah. I, so I like that. I'm going to use that. Um, cultivated obsolescence. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I try so hard to find little phrases that capture what I'm getting at. So yeah. This is a, have, a, a, yeah. And oh, and then there's some to go with that, right? Um, Proverbs ten nineteen, um, when there are many words, transgress, uh, transgression is um, is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. In Proverbs yes. eighteen twelve eighteen two, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in disclosing what is on his mind. Wow, that's right. That's deep. Those <laughs> should challenge us. <laughs> yeah, that's why I love Proverbs. They they. Don't mess around. <laughs> no, it is timeless, timeless wisdom with the gloves off. 
absolutely straight for the dagger, so so to speak. Um, so let's talk about stylistic homogeneity. Homogeneity. Yes, homogeneity. Yes. Homo- okay. Sorry. Um, that is okay. This is homogeneity is the idea. Some of you, uh, some of the listeners may be familiar with this, but uh, it's the idea that things look or seem all the same. So mm. a homogenous groups seem to be of the same sort of either socioeconomic status or maybe um, ethnicity or uh, general ideology. So what tends to happen sociologically is that if we communicate with only one certain type of person, then Mm -hmm. just naturally we tend to train ourselves to be like those people. And and Mm -hmm. that is not that's not anything that we can really Mm -hmm. avoid very easily. It just happens. Mm -hmm. Why families all tend to have similar mannerisms sometimes within themselves. It's why uh, when you're talking to really good friends, you share inside jokes and no one else gets it. It's this idea that we share habits, mannerisms, sayings um, among Mm. ourselves. And we, when we are talking about favorite, favorite books, favorite movies, your mm-hmm. friends are going to likely hear your favorites and then you're going to end up um, being able to take them out to those movies and you probably will see the movies and read the books that they want to see and read. So, um, mm-hmm. And not much outside of that. So that's what happens in the apologetics community. And mm-hmm. if we're not careful, what, what we tend to do, especially since we are globalized now online mm-hmm. where we can someone in, in Kansas can talk to someone in Malaysia or someone in Australia can um, share information with, and build a relationship with someone in Canada. So we've got a globalized apologetic community now to some degree. And so when all we do is talk to each other, then we end up sounding a lot like each other. So what happens, instead of pursuing our own unique callings in our own corners of the kingdom, all we do is we pay attention to what books are being uh, recommended mm. in the online globalized community rather than our local uh, community. And so if there's a new book by a really well-known apologist then and that one is being talked about, then what happens is, let's say Facebook, for example, that's what everyone's talking about. You haven't read it, so you feel like you need to spend a lot of time reading it. And books actually do take up time, and that's a good thing. Yes, they do. But <laughs> but there may there may be a book that either is just all around a better book for you to be spending your time on or um, is more pertinent to your local situation or at least to your situation where uh, there are people in your sphere of influence that would not be well served by that popular book mm-hmm. that was thrown mm-hmm. around online. So it may actually be better for you to refrain from, from following that particular trend. Um, and not only that, but here's a concrete example. We've got a lot of people focusing on the new atheist movement, and that is an important thing. The new atheists, which are not, as people frequently say, they are not there's, new. It's not the atheism that's new, them, it's the right. tone. <laughs> right. But um, what we tend to do, and this is what I've noticed in these apologetics groups, we tend to focus exclusively on the atheistic, the new atheists communities because they are the most vocal and aggressive. Um, But there are still many other worldviews that are not really being talked about. 
So mm. we've got the idea of simply moralistic therapeutic deism to uh, to coin or to use Christian Smith's phrase, which basically means it's uh, the God that is believed in often is is distant, but he's there as kind of a genie in the sky. He's not really anything that is um, anywhere near the God of the Bible. You've also got people who are flirting with, with the old New Age, new terms, mm-hmm. still New Age, but nobody uses that term anymore. <laughs> and you've got mm-hmm. postmodernism. You've got all manner. Uh, yeah. Postmodernism still around. And right. so we've got all manner of challenges that if we only focus on the trends of the apologetic community, it it, it seems that you could be fooled into thinking that the only thing that matters is atheism. Yeah, you know, I mean, what you're saying here, I mean, I cannot even tell you how much I'm, I'm just resonating with it. Um, anyone who knows Devin and I know that we are very devoted to outreach ministry. And, I mean, whether that's, at the abortion clinic on the sidewalk, whether that he's in the prison teaching and preaching or we're at the prison transitional home talking to men who are coming out of prison to people in the, and elderly people in the nursing home to um, just different types of people in different places in their life and in their journey. And you know what? Apologetics has helped us so much um, in every situation that we've been in. Um, it has helped us to learn how to think clearly through, you know, just through difficult issues that people are facing and to give them real answers, um, not pet answers, but real answers. And so I this, this message that we're teaching that God is real, he can be known, um, the truth can be defended, it's not some fairy tale in the sky. This is something that we need to take to all people, not just people in, in, in academia, um, and not just to try to fight the new atheists or what you know what have you. This is a real, it's a real truth and a real message that we need to to proclaim to all people. So I'm, I'm told, and if we um, if we limit ourselves, um, and I understand that sometimes you're called more so to a certain demographic than another, um, that's fine, but you cannot shut yourself off from others who need to know who right. God is. Right, you know? and even even unintentionally, because that's mm-hmm. what happens we when yeah. we engage in this uh, stylistic homogeneity where we start to sound just like the people that we're around the most or that we're interacting with mm-hmm. the most. And uh, so our styles all sound exactly the same. And that's not helpful because if we're the body of Christ, uh, not all of us are right hands or uh, elbows or anything like that. We we need to actually be the body of Christ, not just the apologetics community as a part of the body of Christ, but right. we and need we, to be doing we, apologetics as a whole. Yeah, and don't be fond yeah. where we, I mean, I, what I found, I mean, we, we uh, apologists get bitter. They get bitter towards local church and towards other Christians and because they don't accept their message and they don't want to hear logic and reason and they just want to, you know, um, hold to blind faith, these sort of things. But if we're not, we have to, we have to give in too, you know, we have to be willing to, um, to, to meet people where they are as well and to not just judge them and just get bitter, but just to work with them 
you can just there's there's ways that you can talk about these issues that they don't even know maybe per se initially that they're doing apologetics or that they're talking about apologetics. But there's ways that you can work it into conversations and it, it can it can happen. And then over time you can really get them interested in what what we love and without even without forcing it or without fighting or getting bitter about it. Right. And the best way to do that is to be someone worth listening to, to be someone mm-hmm. who this person knows cares about them. So this is not mm-hmm. all about just trying to get out there and convert people. This is a mm-hmm. we do obviously want to bring people to the Lord, but these are also people made in the image and likeness of God who are inherently valuable, which mm-hmm. means that we need to love them regardless of the consequence of their spiritual decision. <laughs> and so what, mm-hmm. that, what that then means is that we have to be uh, willing to deeply care about people and listen even when we aren't able to say anything that would cause them to mm-hmm. think we're brilliant. But just simply be willing to listen and to care and to do things that maybe – don't have anything to do with academics, um, right. but at the same time have the tool belt, have the intellectual equipment that you can have and, and do all the, mm-hmm. the study that you can, seek excellence in all those areas, but then don't be so prideful as to think that you have to use it all the time and ignore the needs of whoever you're around. Exactly, and so I I do think that, um, again, within the apologetic community, we can kind of build our own our own brotherhood where we're our, our own support system to each other um and not be engaged um which is which is so important and um you know 'cause if we're not if we're if we're just preaching apologetics to each other and just reading books together and bouncing ideas off each other, I mean in the end what's the point, you know? <laughs> Right. It's it's iron sharpening iron, but then you have to use the iron. Exactly. And and we have to use it wisely and lovingly. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this. So you um like I said again, reading through some of your stuff here. Um guarding fleeing from flashiness over solid content. Let's yes. talk about that. Well, First of all, we, as you know, we live in a, a culture that is very image-oriented, both with respect to pictures online, on TV, and then also your your personal public image. So kind of what people think of you is very important. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we have a tendency also, and there have been books that have come out about this, we've had a tendency to gravitate toward the leadership style of very flashy, charismatic, um, extroverted people. And Mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that personality style at all. But the the problem is that the expectation of leadership now, the expectation of teaching, um, of preaching, is this this flashy, maybe funny storytelling or joke-telling or uh, really entertaining personality and not everyone has that personality and not only mm-hmm. that but when you when you try to make that when you try to be that kind of person when you're not that kind of person or even when you are and you 
kind of go over the top and milk it too far, then what suffers is your content. Because what ends up what ends up happening is it's you that's the focus. It's not Mm -hmm. true. And what happens? And we, uh, Doug Doug Rothaus and I just recently taught a seminar on teaching difficult things. And one of the things that we brought up is be very afraid if people. The only thing that people have to say about you after you've talked is either you're so funny or you're so smart, because Mm -hmm. they don't have anything anything important that they remember. And Mm. That's a that's a warning sign right there that you have eclipsed your content. And not only that, but when we do uh, PowerPoint presentations or when we do when we show video clips or things like that, those have a place. They're, I'm not here to say don't use those things, but often right. we, we use those things as a as a crutch to kind of mask our poor pre- preparation. Mm. Yes, yeah, this is not um, good. You know, it's interesting. Saturday, this, this is past Saturday, um, Devin did a um, a presentation at a church at our discipleship seminar, and he did a, um, a talk on finding logical fallacies. So he did two sessions on that. Um, the first session, he had a he did a PowerPoint, and we my husband is so he's not technologically um, informed at all, <laughs> but he managed to put together a PowerPoint. I, I don't know how he did it, but he did. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I did some editing on it and that kind of thing, but it was still not, definitely not high tech or anything. It was very basic. Um, mm-hmm. So we put this PowerPoint together. Um, we go through the first session. The projector will not work. So he's got to talk through the whole, and you're talking about logical fallacies, you're talking about ad hominems and red herrings and, I mean, all these, some of these really deep topics that are difficult to talk about just in a hour session or 45-minute session to people who don't know what you're talking about. So mm. he taught through it. He taught through it with no PowerPoint. And everyone, they were taking great notes. I mean, they got it. By the end, we were asking questions and getting, they got it without the PowerPoint. Um, the second session, yes. it was working, and he had a PowerPoint working, and it was—I mean, it was good too. But I was so impressed with our first group because they—they totally got everything he was saying because they were—they were listening, you know. They were taking information in, and it wasn't anything stylistic or um, visual, but they were just listening to the information. So yes, I, I and that's it can be—it can be a hindrance. It can be, and that's one of the things I think probably what what was going on there is uh, I make this distinction between teaching and presenting, and I think he was teaching, and the way that I make that distinction is by saying that all teaching is presenting, but not all presenting is teaching, where Mm -hmm. if you're presenting, the idea is more simply focused on delivery of content, delivery of information. Mm -hmm. And you can do that through PowerPoint. You can do that without PowerPoint. You can do that um, when you're writing. But teaching is is very focused. It does involve, it is content-driven, obviously, but it is also student-oriented and student-driven, which means that if you're a true teacher, you are drawing people in because you're concerned about them and you're making them sure that what you are teaching matters. 
And mm. and it's not just that you're teaching it because you're paid to. It's not just because you're teaching it you're not teaching it just because you're smart and you were asked to, but you're doing it because you are convinced that it matters and it matters to them personally, and which means that you need to be interested in them personally and they can tell when you're not. And uh, right. one of the things that some PowerPoint users do, some uh, video clip users do, is they, they use those things to kind of step in between the teacher and the students and rather than entering into their learning world and trying to help motivate them and compel them to care about something that they might not have cared about before. And that's what apologetics should do. We should be teachers. We should not present our brilliance, present our arguments, but but teach them, help disciple people. Mm. And it cannot be divorced from discipleship. Mm. Okay, so speaking of discipleship, let's talk about that. So... One of the points that you're very strong on is for apologists, do not neglect discipleship. Yes. Talk about that. Well, that's that is something that I wish we talked more about. And this this has happened before when uh the church had a much greater emphasis on um tract conversion and street conversions, evangelism, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um what what happen what tends to happen is we divorce these things from discipleship because discipleship requires a commitment to a person and mm-hmm. if you are doing either pre-evangelism apologetics or evangelism and you don't you're not willing to disciple these people then what you're doing is you are basically to to a large extent uh ruining their life because who knows what they're going to go home to if they're if they're all of a sudden um convinced that maybe god does exist and maybe if it's a muslim and the person is all of a sudden haunted by this jesus person that probably was not just a prophet um that that's going to really screw up a person's life when they go home now ultimately it is saving ultimately it is a good thing but not only are they at a point of instability when they initially are considering conversion or have initially converted, but uh, they very possibly are going to lose a lot of their support system. And not Mm. only that, but these folks often don't know where to start with education, with, with Christian education. They don't know how to read the Bible. So, it is our responsibility, our solemn responsibility to stay with these people and to actually recognize, too, that even if the people do not convert either at all or in our preferred time frame, that we remain sensitive to the fact that we may still be called to be a part of this person's life. And we could actually, we don't really know how God is going to work through our faithfulness, but we still must be faithful faithful and loving. So we have to realize that the success of, of individual arguments aren't always everything. If, you, if you're talking to someone and you present a very compelling, strong argument for the existence of God, and this person might be an agnostic or an atheist even, uh, if they reject it, but they still are willing to be your friend, that should be acceptable. Because what Mm -hmm. you have not done is you haven't showed them that you're ridiculous and not worth listening to or spending time with. So also you don't know whether or not they're too prideful to accept the truth of it at that time. So we need to stay with them and 
be focused on the person and not so much the task of apologetics itself at that when we're faced with human beings right in front of us. I mean, I cannot tell you I mean what discipleship has done for us in our life and our just personally, you know. We have men and women who have walked with us and challenged us and held us accountable and I mean it it's been a difficult but a the best journey ever, you know, and it should not ever be neglected. I think every person needs at least one or two people just to um, disciple them. doesn't matter what you know or how how many degrees that you have. You need people that will hold you accountable to what Christ says. You know, are you in the Bible? Are you praying? Are you, you know, spending time with your wife? Are you, you know, these sort of things. Um we all need that, and apologists, we, we definitely need that. We need we need to have a a, a, a real a, you know we need to represent ourselves well to the to the world and to the church. Yes. And so I think that discipleship is a very big um, part of that. So um, yeah, and so what would you say? What what would you say the the most um, in terms of how we tend to celebritize, I don't know if that's a, a, a verb or not, but um but celebritize certain apologists. And what what how how do you think that we should deal with that? Because it's it's so easy to do and I do it too. So how should we handle that? Because we need, you know, for their sake and for our sake. Yes. Well, one of the things that we can do is, is think about who was one of the greatest celebrities in Scripture, and uh, there were many. One of them was Paul, um, and, the, and Paul guarded. He tried to guard people against this and, and steer them away from this by saying, "Only follow me as far as I follow Christ." The the emphasis there is on Christ. It's on the person and work of the Triune God, and so that means that the the role of of Paul, the role of other people who are uh, who are doing evangelistic uh, and pastoral and apologetic work is that we need to ultimately either either overtly or kind of covertly point to Christ. Mm-hmm. And the point is not us. And if what that means is if you are really successful at what you do, if you are maybe gifted at communicating difficult ideas, if you are gifted in uh, the area of writing, if you're someone that that is just generally looked up to by a lot of people who come into contact with you, it's actually dangerous because what can happen is you can become the focus. And once again, your personality, going back to what we said earlier, your personality can eclipse what the message is. It can eclipse the mm-hmm. content. And so what we have to do is Christian celebrities, so to speak, actually need to be more careful about not necessarily accepting that sort of talk. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps there are people who are uh, enjoying the the books and the resources of these what we would call Christian celebrities need to also realize that they are fallible human beings. They they can mm-hmm. be mistaken, and often. They are mistaken because yeah. what what happens is we need to 
to gain truth wherever we can find it, but we tend to focus on the people who we think are the most right, and then we tend to be sloppy about everything that they say and think that, well, because they're usually right, they must always be right, which is mm-hmm. not the case. That's a that's a false conclusion there. So we need to make sure that we're, we're seeking intellectual and spiritual mentors, but they are not the people who need to determine what we say, how we say it, and um, they're not the people who determine what we read either. They're they're people mm-hmm. who we need to learn from, but we need to learn from them with full recognition of their humanity. Right. You know, one of the things, there's an apologist. Many people don't agree with some of his theological um, leanings, but um, Dr. James White, for instance, I remember he, him coming to SES and doing a talk recent, or last year, I think it was, and one of his regrets was, I have to be away from my church because he's an elder at the church. So, mm. you know, I can't preach this week at church. Um, and someone has to fill in. And he, the fact that he took that role as the elder of his church that seriously, that, to even bring that up, while he's, you know, you know, a thousand miles away um, with us um, discussing presuppositional versus um, classical apologetics, um, you know, that meant a lot to me. That spoke a lot to me more than even the talk itself, you know. He mm-hmm. was thinking about the church and his his um, his role there in the church as an elder. Um, right. So, again, yeah. And those are the people who I think we really need to use as our mentors. As, even if we don't know them personally, you can have an intellectual mm-hmm. Uh, and spiritual mentor without ever even really knowing the person because the way that this individual lives and and thinks and writes and interacts with disagreement is is such a Christ-like way of being that you can learn from that. And I think that those are the people we need to try to read the most from and spend the most time listening to. And um, even if they may, even if perhaps you could theoretically find someone who is technically smarter but the the whole picture is what we're after. The Christ likeness mm-hmm. is, is what we're after. Um, yeah. But but still, that has to be done all within the understanding and the recognition that the the point of all of this is the glory of God alone. And exactly. this the moment that we start to rely too heavily, um, wait wait with bated breath for what a certain apologist might say about a topic, mm-hmm. then then we're maybe risking missing the point. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> wow, so this has been good stuff. So we have, um, wow, we've talked about a lot of heavy stuff. So what would you say, I mean, as a, to wrap up just an, an encouragement to um, our apologist brethren and sister and <laughs> about um, what, I mean, what we can do to um, stay positive and focus on our goal and to understand where our goal yes. even even is. Well, the the goal of apologetics is to commend the faith as true and as pertinent, uh, not just to the world but to individuals. And what we have to realize is that this, what has caused problems, which is the the Internet, the rise of 
um, enormous numbers of apologetics conferences and degrees and all those things, those, yes, cause problems, but it is also a very good thing because we do have a greater platform than we've ever had in recent memory or in distant memory. And because of that, we need to recognize that we have a responsibility to the next generation of Christians, and there's a possibility that that next generation of Christians will be even more prepared than we are to defend the faith because mm-hmm. this we have such a great resource at our fingertips, which is the, the globalized world. We can access a lot of information. But that doesn't mean information equals knowledge. We still have to be diligent and do the work to actually understand that information. And um, since I, I love epistemology, I always say you, you can't just in, integrate information without upgrading it into knowledge um, or else that information is useless. The knowledge is justified true belief. And right. we need to always study, um, always seek faithfulness to. Uh, and one of the things that we get discouraged about sometimes is not feeling personally effective or uh, numerically effective, but faithfulness to God is our primary concern. And that is, if you read the Old Testament, that's, that is the story of Israel, is uh, God expecting faithfulness out of them and Israel screwing mm-hmm. up and then repenting and yes. becoming more faithful over and, and over leaving and, over. and coming back. <laughs> yeah, and that is our call as the people of God, and he will take care of the effectiveness. But if we don't, mm-hmm. if we hang faithfulness and try to just convert the masses to who knows what, um, then what ends up happening is we may or may not actually end up making disciples. We just kind of might change some minds here and there, but we are leaving hearts in the dust. Hmm. So ultimately yeah, we do sure. need to realize that, that God is in control and that's, that's our job and he will use us if we're faithful. You know, I... Just, I mean, just telling. Just this weekend, um, I I um, was a part of of someone of a close per, a close family member coming to Christ, um, and it, it had nothing to do with me. It was it was the work of God, you know. Um, and then another friend last night that we met with, who God radically transformed her life and brought her to Himself, who just six weeks ago was just self off in Christ, you know. But he brought her to himself. And so it is, you're right. It it is it is a work of God that we um we're called to to just come alongside him. We're not we're not the end all. We're just tools along the journey. And we don't know where God's gonna use us in that journey, but if we view ourselves as too high in that journey then um, it's it, it's definitely a problem, and um, and it's all glory goes to him. It was just so neat seeing um, two people who I love just confess their complete devotion to Jesus, um, and that's nothing that I could have ever done. That is something that only Christ can do. Amen. Yeah. So, wow. This is been a heavy t- a heavy talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, it's been heavy, but it's been it's good. It's it's what we needed, and um, I just 
any any closing thoughts just to give us um just you know an overview of everything and give some good exhortation to take from it all hmm. well, I think that the bottom line is that we need to constantly be adjusting ourselves to the um, the image of of christ and what how Christ lived how christ Calls, what he calls us to, and mm-hmm. what it means to be a virtuous human being in light of the mission of God, in light of the Great Commission. And if we divorce apologetics from that as just a little fun hobby or uh, maybe an intellectual game, that's where we not only are our souls in, in danger of um, failing to bear fruit, but we're also putting other people who come into contact with us in danger of failing to understand why why truth matters and how to prioritize and how to develop a heart for people and a heart for the world. Mm-hmm. And if we understand that, then apologetics is going to be, be our greatest tool and it, it is going mm-hmm. to be the way that God uses us in the lives of many. Yeah, when you I'm telling you, when you combine the, the intellectual, the knowledge of these topics about the Bible being reliable and God's existence with a true love for people, I mean there is I mean, there's no stopping us, you know? <laughs> right. That is the so truth. We, we we have to be diligent to do both. We have to do that. So, wow. So it's good uh, time with you, Sarah. Um, so Thanks for having people, me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. How can people uh, follow you, find you? Um, I know we're talking about not following people and that kind of stuff, not no celebrities and that no Christian celebrities. But, uh, <laughs> no. Okay. No, that's fine. Um, my, oh, I have a blog. Um, the blog that I keep is uh, it's also got some recordings on it from other things and such as that. And the address is www.justifiedfaith.com. And I'm also yeah, I'm also active on Facebook, and that's not always real. I mean, you, you get a heavy dose of animal stuff on there. But uh, my website would be the, <laughs> the best place to go, I think. So justifyfaith.com. Well, I, I highly yes. encourage you guys to follow Sarah because she is someone who is going to always point you to Christ, and um, I, I, I appreciate the work that she's doing um, to to um, just to improve and to strengthen the body of Christ and um, to get us um, thinking about these issues that we should be um, focused on. Um, in this hour in, in our country and in our, in our history. So, um, Sarah, totally appreciate you being here. Um, and I look forward to meeting you in a couple weeks. Yes, I do too. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You too. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, folks, you have listened to another episode of Theology Matters. Um, we hope that this. Um, broadcast is strengthened and edified you and um, we look forward to hearing your comments and questions and 
um, these sort of things. And um, Devin should be back with me soon, <laughs> um, despite his studies right now. But either way, we know that um, God will continue to bring amazing guests every week and that he will strengthen and edify all of us as I have been tonight. Um, Look forward to being with you all next week, and God bless. Have a great night.